0: And learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive.
1: Welcome to Mental Health, Hope and Recovery. I'm Helen Sneed.
2: And I'm Valerie
1: Milburn. We both have fought and overcome severe chronic mental illnesses. Our podcast offers a unique approach to mental health conditions. We use practical skills and inspirational stories of recovery. Our knowledge is up close and personal.
2: Helen and I are your peers. We're not doctors, therapists, or social workers. We're not professionals, but we are experts. We are experts through our own lived experience with multiple mental health diagnoses and symptoms. Please join us on our journey.
1: We live in recovery. So can you.
2: This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information presented is not intended to be a substitute or relied upon as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is for informational purposes only. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers for any health-related questions you may have.
1: Episode 10, Understanding and Overcoming Eating Disorders, Personal and Therapeutic Perspectives. We've tackled some complex subjects in our podcast but nothing has rivaled eating disorders for me. First, there are a number of eating disorders, all of which can be quite individual and yet frequently overlap. A person can have more than one, they can morph over time, and comorbidity is often a factor. Second, the illnesses are little understood, frequently slighted, and often underestimated. And third, treatment methods are still emerging. Valerie and I will begin with the basic overview of eating disorders, followed by my telling my own story. Valerie, who has never had an eating disorder, will provide research and serve as our moderator. After my story, we'll explore some of the skills that can contribute towards recovery. and Finally, and most importantly, we'll be joined by Nethery Falchuk, LCSW, who specializes in the treatment of eating disorders. We are very excited to hear what her expertise can teach us. We are. It's going to be great. Yep. Now, the interesting thing is well, I guess it's no surprise, is that throughout our investigation, it's become clear that eating disorders have been exacerbated by the pandemic uh, in ways that no one could have foreseen. The Washington Post reported that an American Psychological Association study revealed that 61% of US adults felt they had undesired weight changes since the start of the pandemic and calls to the national eating disorder association hotline have increased by as much as 80% during the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. I find this just really, really staggering. Um, Valerie, 61% of Americans are concerned about their weight. So can you just tell us sort of the basic about eating disorders? What are they exactly?
2: I can. And The following information is from the National Eating Disorders Association, and they define eating disorders as serious but treatable mental and physical illnesses that can affect people of all genders, ages, races, religions, ethnicities, sexual orientations, body shapes, and weights. National surveys estimate that 20 million women and 10 million men in America will have an eating disorder at some point in their lives. Now, while no one knows for sure what causes eating disorders, a growing consensus suggests that it is a range of biological, psychological, and sociocultural factors. Eating disorders are complex life-threatening disorders from which people can and do get better. There are four aspects to an eating disorder, behavioral, cognitive, physical, and emotional. These disorders are often mistaken to be primarily about food when actually it is a way of coping with feelings too uncomfortable to disclose. There are three major types of eating disorders. Anorexia nervosa is an eating disorder characterized by weight loss. Difficulties maintaining an appropriate body weight and, in many individuals, a distorted body image. The second one is bulimia nervosa, and it's characterized by a cycle of binge eating and and offsetting behaviors such as self-induced vomiting. And these offsetting behaviors are designed to undo or compensate for the effects of binge eating. The last third major type of an eating disorder is binge eating disorder, the most common eating disorder in the United States. And it is characterized by recurrent episodes of eating large quantities of food, a feeling of a loss of control during the binge, experiencing shame, distress, or guilt afterwards, and regularly using unhealthy offsetting measures to counter the binge eating. Well, I know
1: that there are a lot of misconceptions about who actually uh, you know gets eating disorders and i think obviously a lot of people think that it's just these are illnesses of young girls but so what does your research actually reveal because i know it's very different
2: there is solid research on the percentages of males and females struggling with eating disorders for example when researchers followed a group of 500 adolescent girls for 8 years until they were 20, they found that 5% of girls met criteria for anorexia, bulimia, or binge eating disorder. When researchers included non-specific eating disorder symptoms, a total of 13% of girls had suffered from an eating disorder by age 20. Now this is something a lot of people don't know. Males represent 25% of individuals with anorexia, and males are at a higher risk of dying, in part because they are often diagnosed later, since many people assume males don't have eating disorders. But binge eating, purging, laxative abuse, and fasting for weight loss are nearly as common among males as they are among females. And there's one more statistic that I want to share. That is alarming. And that is that young people between the ages of 15 and 24 with anorexia have 10 times the risk of dying compared to their same age peers.
1: That is tragic. It's just tragic.
3: It is. And, and not known, I don't think. I don't think this is known generally. I agree. This is information that just
2: particularly the information about males is. Information that I know I learned a lot about as I did the research for this episode, and as I've spoken to people about the information I've learned about eating disorders, others just are unaware of it. And another area that uh, the research is very solid on is the rate of co-occurring disorders, and co-occurring disorders means um, having two or more disorders at the same time. And the co-occurring disorder rate with an eating disorder is very high. Here are some statistics. Up to 50% of individuals with eating disorders abused alcohol or illicit illicit drugs, and that's a rate five times higher than the general population. And up to 35% of individuals who abused drugs or were dependent on alcohol or other drugs also have an eating disorder, a rate 11 times greater than the general population. Another study, this one of 2400 individuals hospitalized for an eating disorder, have some gave me some astonishing statistics on co-occurring disorders. Because this study found that 94% of individuals with an eating disorder also had a mood disorder, 92% also had a
3: depressive disorder, and 50% of those also had an anxiety disorder. There are some statistics suicide and eating disorders that are also startling. Eating
2: disorders, specifically anorexia, has the highest mortality rate of all mental health disorders. So whether it's from medical complications or suicide, eating disorders are known to kill. Studies have shown that individuals with anorexia have the highest successful
3: suicide rates, and individuals with bulimia have the greatest number of. Suicide attempts. I I, I am shocked by this,
1: Uh, but it's it's good to know. But it is it is truly hard to hear. We we also want to look at what causes it. Um, Now, obviously, there are many causes for these eating disorders, but we're going to touch on a few. The first is abuse and trauma. It's difficult to specify what's nature versus nurture. But regardless, victims of abuse and trauma often develop eating disorders. The feeling of loss of control during the trauma can result in the attempt to control food. Also, abuse victims frequently suffer from extremely distorted body images and the belief that their body has betrayed them. Now, Nethery is a trauma expert. It's going to open up this subject later.
2: Another factor that is often considered uh, a contributor to causing eating disorders is societal pressures. And there's a great quote about societal pressure and body image that Helen, you and I just love. And we, you and I call it bathroom stall wisdom because it's on a sign in the bathroom at one of our favorite restaurants, a restaurant that happens to be known for its fabulous desserts. And the quote is, <laughs> the quote is reflections in this mirror may be distorted by socially constructed ideas of beauty. And it is definitely interesting about cultural swings, because at one point Rubenesque figures were socially correct. During this time, women were revered when voluptuous, curvy. Now, women are revered when thin. So whatever the societal norm, women strive to conform I know there is an example in my life. Whenever I came home from college, within an hour, my mother would comment on my weight. I was either too thin or too heavy. And there's another experience. A friend of mine was in drill team when she was in high school, and there were strict weight standards. They were weighed once a week. And she said this was the beginning of her obsession with her weight beginning of her anorexia, the beginning of her bulimia, and she believes, although there were many other things going on in her life, that this was a huge contributing factor. Another contributing factor is stigma, and there's so much stigma around eating disorders. I believe because it's misunderstood, and Nethery will comment on this later, I think stigma equals shame, stigma equals silence, silence equals no support, no treatment. There's another kind of stigma in our society, weight stigma. It's discrimination or stereotyping based on a person's weight, and it's damaging and pervasive in our society. I think if we're honest, many of us will admit to something like not wanting someone who's overweight to sit next to us on an airplane.
1: Oh, it's this, this bias is so, well, I'm going to talk about it later because it's been such a profound presence in my own life. Um, Now, there's something, Valerie, that's that's been a lot in the news today, most recently, and that's all about studies that are revealing the catastrophic impact of social media on eating disorders. Can you elaborate on that? Another place there
2: is solid research. Research shows the average American spends more than 11 hours a day using media. That's more than the average time spent sleeping or working each day. And teenagers spend an average of nine hours a day using media, and that does not include using media in school or doing homework. Now, the effect of this on eating disorders or the effect of it on our view of ourselves or women's view of their, their body comes from, uh, is backed up by more solid research. Research shows that approximately 70% of women and girls report a decline in body confidence and an increase in beauty and appearance anxiety which they say is driven by the pressure for perfection from media and advertising's unrealistic
3: standard of beauty this is another thing that research shows and is has shown up in my life of girls and even
2: more women, 85%, admit to opting out of important events in their lives when they don't feel they look their best.
1: And I have to say that I have had a number of men friends who have had the same issues.
2: I I know the research has backed that up. One last statistic on social media's impact 90% of women. Say they will actually not eat and risk putting their health at stake when they feel bad about their body image.
3: Well,
1: this leads to the uh, terrible impact on the body and the physical side effects of these disorders. Eating disorders represent an assault on the body with a host of physical injuries that can be lethal. I have almost died from anorexia and have called it slow public suicide. It becomes this kind of deathly spectator sport. You know, people were watching me starve to death, but they could do nothing to stop it. The physical impact is just downright dangerous. I hear just a few. Weakness, malnourishment, fainting, dizziness, weakened immune system, amenorrhea, which is when your periods stop, abdominal distress, tooth decay, esophageal injury, migraine, insomnia, hair loss, panic attacks, obesity, extreme thinness, and, of course, death. In addition, it is bodily harm from self-injury, alcohol and substance use, and suicide. Throughout, a dramatically distorted body image, often not based in reality at all, can drive these abuses. The individual can crave control over just one aspect of life in the outside world when everything seems so chaotic, and a sense of control over himself or herself. There's also the belief that weight loss will fix your life. My life is bad because I'm fat. My life will be good if I am thin. A life distilled into this one belief. And that's a good place to start my story.
2: I really admire you, Helen, for being willing to share your story. I believe it's going to help so many people to hear your journey, your struggle, your battle for recovery, your hope.
1: Well, thank you. I um, I guess I should say I've had eating disorders, I think, before they had a name. And we would be here for several days if I tried to tell my whole story. So I'm going to try to point out major turning points in the progression of the illnesses across the years that I did battle with food. As I tell my story, please be warned that the language and experiences can be extremely fat shaming. Now, I don't want to offend or trigger anyone, but I believe it's best to be truthful about what happened to me when I was overweight, because I know I'm not alone. To begin with, I've been on a diet since the third grade. Now, I've said before that I have amnesia until the age of eight, but I do know that I was a skinny, scrawny little girl. When I was nine, we moved and I had more access to the world and new friendships, but I began to eat everything in sight until I was plump. And it wasn't for many years that I would understand why. At the time, it was a catastrophe. I was weighed every day at home. I remained overweight until high school. And I want to say that the bullying was cruel and unrelenting. And I felt completely vulnerable and unsafe. I mean, at any hour of the day or night, someone could attack me or ridicule me. And what could I do? I just sat there engulfed in shame because I was bad and repulsive. I had no recourse. Did anyone address the
2: bullying, a teacher, a guidance counselor?
1: You know, no, I can't remember anyone standing up for me. Um, It was just, you know, again, it was just what happened to fat people. You know, you were, you were just an object of ridicule and contempt. But at 15, I learned to starve myself. And I got down to a size that met the standards of the day. It was my first bout with anorexia. Now, when I got to college, uh, by my sophomore year, I had starved myself into submission. And I was able to control my weight, but only in the most unhealthy ways imaginable. As I mentioned earlier, the social pressure was profound and universal. Girls, and indeed all women, were expected to be slender, well-dressed, gracious, and modest. This message was so pervasive, it was reflected in magazines, televisions, and movies, songs, books, parties, and dinners. I found this fabulous quote in Healthy Place that I wish I had seen back in those days. They say, a cultural fixation on female thinness is not an obsession about female
3: beauty, but an obsession about female obedience. And I obeyed. Yes. So Obedience to cultural norms and societal pressures.
1: Yeah, it just, it never, again, I was just, I was, I just didn't have the strength to stand up to these ridiculous norms. And I didn't think they were ridiculous at the time. I was convinced that I would be alone in life. And this was my core belief. But I had a brilliant college career. Although I fell apart the minute I graduated because I had no people and no structure. And I went into a two-year depression, which was the first time that I was incapacitated by mental illness. And I gained about 40 or 50 pounds. Now, somehow in the midst of this, I managed to move to New York City. I knew only one person there and I didn't like her. Mm -hmm. However, I managed to build a great life with wonderful friends and opportunities. But I continued the binge eating of large amounts and gained even more weight. Now, here's a great one. When I was 23, a fashion designer friend had some advice when, I, advice when I lamented my weight gain. Well, you know what models do, he said. They take laxatives to get thinner. And thus, a bulimic was born. And my struggles with binging and purging plagued me to this very day. For the next several decades of my life, I was relegated to a vicious cycle of eating disorders, weight gain, anorexic starving, thinness, binging and purging, anorexia, thinness, binging and purging, weight gain, and then the cycle would begin again and again. The anorexia did become life-threatening. Everyone except the people in my life who were obsessed with my thinness and thrilled by it told me that I looked like a skeleton, like I was dying. My period stopped. My hair began to fall out. I was freezing cold all the time and so exhausted I would lie in bed and just watch my limbs flopping around. A doctor told me I was beginning to convulse because my body was devouring muscle and his
3: only advice was to eat more beef. Through it all, I still felt and looked fat in my own eyes
1: and when I was hospitalized in my early thirties. Anorexia was so little understood that I got very little acknowledgement of my problems with food or any health. I gained weight there, but then became anorexic again and was dangerously thin when I left the hospital.
3: Again, no advice was offered about my condition.
2: You know, the contrast between my treatment during one of my hospital stays And your description just now of getting no treatment for your eating disorder is an illustration, I think, of the confusing, confounding nature of eating disorders. Once when I was hospitalized for severe depression, I had lost a lot of weight, but I had started out overweight and was not at an unhealthy weight. But because of the weight loss, I was put on an eating disorder protocol and was weighed every morning in a paper-thin gown, having to um, get on the scale backwards so I wouldn't see my weight. I was followed um, by a staff member. She sat with me while I ate, stayed with me after I ate so that I wouldn't uh, purge. And I was treated unnecessarily for an eating disorder I didn't have. And I think that really shows a contrast that um, explains that confounding. Confusing nature of eating disorders.
1: Yes, and again, it's um, it's ongoing. I think um, I I begin to do well outwardly for the next twenty years. I, I've I've talked about this. My ability to lead a double life, you know, build a, a really a very good footbridge over the sewer that was flowing inside me. I was in New York City, which I loved. I had a great career and active social life, but I was in therapy twice a week and always on a lot of medication. So there I was leading a very successful life, but I was in agony underneath and a slave to food urges and obsessions always. At the height of my professional success, I went to a new doctor who diagnosed PTSD for the first time. This was like a parting of the Red Seas for me. It was this doctor who persuaded me to quit my job and go into full-time treatment because she was afraid that I was going to kill myself. And that was the beginning of the end for me. For five years, I went straight downhill under her care. And in all that time, she never addressed my eating disorders or suggested therapeutic methods to deal with them. By then, I was taking 12 medications, including one that was known for rapid, rapid weight gain. I weighed over 200 pounds. I was so miserable and suicidal and self-injuring and isolating that I, couldn't, I just couldn't see a way out. But one day out of the blue, I took two diet books and I made a list of the permissible foods that they recommended. So I sat and looked at this list for a while and then decided that I could exist on what was permitted. And from that day onward, you won't believe this, but I never slipped. I wrote out the urges and I began to lose weight rapidly. Then I joined a gym for the first time in my life and became physically fit. I loved being strong. I took it one day at a time. This was never, never a diet. There was no calorie counting, and I never weighed myself. I still don't. It's too triggering. It was transformative. One day, just really, really down and depressed, I was walking down Broadway when I, I saw my shadow You know, out in
3: front of me, and I thought, your body is strong. It will bear you through this. And later, on a crosstown bus, on
1: a beautiful afternoon, I stood holding onto the pole and realized my body belongs to me. For the first time in my life, I had overcome the childhood trauma. My body belonged to me, not to anyone else.
2: What a beautiful turning point.
1: It, it, it really was. And I, um, I took matters in my own hands. I changed therapists and began to use DBT skills this dialectical behavior, which I'm always talking about, to help overcome the food urges and the negative thoughts that had driven me to food in the first place. And I began to change the way I live my life. And I've had to, I had to say, how did you overcome, someone asked me, how did you overcome these eating disorders? I would say I began to build a life that surrounded them. They were surrounded on all sides. And because there were better things in my life and all these great people and activities, the food urges and the obsessions began to shrink. It's sort of like the way um, uh, uh, your your blood cells surround a virus and and devour it. Um, I began to take risks. You know, I, I went to dinner with friends and I became more confident that I could find these permissible foods on most menus, which, of course, I could. Fear of weight gain no longer dictated my social life, which it always had. Uh, My meds were adjusted. Exercise was exhilarating. Now, if I'm making this sound easy, it was not. It was damn hard. I lost 90 pounds, and it was through eating, healthy eating and exercise. And, you know, I went five straight years without one slip into binging and purging. Now, there were later slips and setbacks, but no one said perfection was possible. It was not what matters, but how you react that pulls you out of it. And I really had to learn that truth. Now, I don't mean to sound pompous and smug about, you know, fighting all of this fairly successfully. It was and still is one of the ongoing battles of my life. And surely the one I fought longest across all these decades. But this is the most important thing I'm going to say. Despite the lost pounds, my recovery was never about weight. It was about learning to respect myself and miraculously my body. I may never love it, but I respect it and am so grateful for what it has withstood. Now, as for today, well, I, you know, hate to admit it, but I've had a very rough time with food in the pandemic. After five years, it's had a dreadful impact on my eating disorders. I've slipped with food and I exercised very little because my beloved gym went out of business. It's embarrassing to admit how I fell back. I mean, it's really, really humiliating. But recently, I've gotten back on track. I've been discouraged, angry, and even depressed, but never have I felt hopeless. I've won this battle before and I will again. Because I have the skills and knowledge to make a better way.
3: I have this great respect for my body and myself. And that, I have learned, is everything. My body is strong. It will bear me through this. Wow. Your own validation of your strength is
2: amazing. And I understand how essential to your recovery it is. I see your strengths in so many areas, your love of life, your love and support of others, your integrity, your humor, your brilliant mind. Thank you, Helen, for sharing your strengths with me as a dear friend. And thank you for sharing your story, your hope with our listeners.
1: Well, I, I, I do, you know, again, it's our great objective, which is I do hope that this long story can help someone I know, as okay. I
2: was helped. I know it will.
0: Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award winning actor, comedian, and best selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive.
2: And I think now is a good time to talk about treatment methods for eating disorders and Nethery's is going to expand on this. And we want to expand on the treatment methods you just mentioned and discuss a few more and uh, want to do an overview of this. Although there may be exceptions, eating disorder treatment generally addresses the following factors in roughly this order. The first um, step in treatment is usually to correct life-threatening medical and psychiatric symptoms because without correcting the life-threatening medical symptoms, there's uh, nowhere to go from there. The second step is to interrupt the eating disorder behaviors, then to establish normalized eating and nutritional rehabilitation, then to challenge unhelpful and unhealthy eating disorder and related thoughts and behaviors, then to address ongoing medical and mental health issues, and last, but very important, to establish a plan to prevent relapse. Another treatment method is hospitalization and in-treatment. Is determined by in by patient by the patient being medically and or psychiatrically unstable, and this of course is determined by a medical and or mental health professional based on a number of critical factors. Now therapy is important, very important, and though the first step for dangerously underweight individuals is medical stability, it is great to have a therapist from the beginning because, as Helen said, regulating emotions is one of the tools to accomplishing the steps toward medical stability.
1: Another thing that I have found to be incredibly helpful was being in group therapy. It was enriching and enlightening. Uh, You know, I found companionship, and it was with people who were fighting the same battle. You know, it's that thing of you're understood, they get it. And it was also a safe place for many reasons, but it was a safe place to learn skills, and to learn to ask for help. Now, then there's medication. To my knowledge, no medication has been specifically designated to address eating disorders. However, meds can be helped tremendously with symptoms and emotional regulation. Um, I know that this worked for me. And then there are the skills training uh, opportunities. What can address the core urges and thoughts that lead to acting out with food? Well, for me, it's, you know, dialectical behavior therapy. The, the, these were the, this was the method that I was taught. And it helped me greatly. Um, now, it didn't act directly on the eating disorders, but it taught me methods for controlling and managing the negative thoughts and feelings that were beneath my troubled relationship with food and my body. I learned to reduce triggers and modulate my emotions and also to take positive action when the urges were tormenting me or opposite actions, as they say. Take a walk, call a friend, you know, just throw on some clothes and and leave your apartment. Anything to escape those food obsessions, because what I did learn over time is that they do pass.
2: Now, another approach to treatment is... Another skill, another source of help is 12-step programs. Eating Disorders Anonymous is similar to other 12-step programs such as Alcoholics Anonymous in that it is a fellowship of individuals who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other to solve their shared problems and assist others in recovering from their eating disorders. There's also Overeaters Anonymous and Anorexics and Bulimics Anonymous. Now, you know me, a mindfulness, uh, uh, what would you call me? A mindfulness? Enthusiast. Enthusiast. A mindfulness, enthusiast. Mindfulness is a treatment for an eating disorder is about staying in the moment. Dr. Harriet Parsons, in her presentation entitled Understanding Eating Disorders, gives an example of a thought process that goes, if I accept my friend's invitation to the movie, I might eat popcorn. If I eat popcorn, I won't be able to eat dinner. But if I don't eat dinner, I might wake up hungry. And if I wake up hungry, I might eat too much and not feel well for my run. If I don't get in a good run, then I can't eat lunch, and on and on and on. This is where mindfulness, the practice of staying in the moment, is the healthy choice. Mindful breathing, mindful eating, and numerous mindful practices are excellent skills for living in recovery with an eating disorder.
1: You have just described. The thinking that so many people are plagued by this just constant, constant racing thoughts I can't eat this, I can't do that, I can't wear this, I can't go there. Uh, that describes it very well, I think. Now, the final uh, uh, method that I'm going to talk about is body work. Now, there's all kinds of body work. What I used is I worked with a trauma expert who whose methodology, whose philosophy was to um, help release, slowly release the trauma from my body and for me to develop a new relationship with my body, which was a first. Now, I have to say it could be very beneficial and it could be very triggering. I I kind of went in there and never knowing how it was going to go out. Um, The other thing, I guess, the overall goal is to, you know, to become – For your mind and your body to merge and to become a cohesive entity. And this helped me ultimately in ways I still can't even measure, but it was not an easy journey. So, the
2: last thing we're going to discuss before we bring Nethery into our conversation is crisis intervention. And we're going to discuss that with her in a minute, but I'd like to get the resource information out there now. I mentioned the high mortality rate earlier. But want to emphasize it again now because as we said earlier, whether from medical complications or suicide, eating disorders are known to kill. And first of all, if you suspect a medical or psychiatric emergency, such as threats of suicide or medical complications from eating disorder behaviors, seek medical attention or call 911 immediately. Now, here are some crisis intervention organizations and hotlines to contact. The National Eating Disorders Association is an incredible resource, and they're available at nationaleatingdisorders.org, and there's an online chat from their website. There's a call or text number on their website. Now, the crisis text line we've talked about before, and I'm hoping the number has become Memorized. It's 741741. That's the crisis text line for any kind of crisis, 741741. Now, for the Eating Disorders, for the National Eating Disorders Association, you type connect to the crisis text line. For anything you want to connect with, anytime you want to connect with 741741, just type hello. Now, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-TALK. Again, 741-741, type hello. Another resource number we haven't talked about is 211. Just call 211. It's a hotline that's intended for anyone who has any type of crisis or who needs any help locating specific resources. And now it's time to introduce Nethery. She is a licensed clinical social worker and supervisor, a certified group psychotherapist, and is owner of Ample and Rooted, which is a group psychotherapy practice specializing in working with the LGBTQ plus community, specializing in eating disorders, body shame, sex and sexuality, gender, relationship concerns, trauma, mindfulness, grief and loss, and substance use. Ample and Rooted. As an inclusive therapy practice, cultivates a safe and welcoming space of compassion and connection. At Ample and Rooted, the belief is that it is our birthright to inhabit, trust, and honor our physical and emotional selves without shame. Nethery is a past president of Central Texas Eating Disorder Specialist, past board member of Austin Group Psychotherapy Society. And past board member of the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health. She lives in Austin, Texas. Nethery Falchuk is a queer, genderqueer, Latinx therapist, certified body trust provider, and certified meditation teacher. Nethery, we are so glad to have someone with your breadth of experience with us today. And I want to go back to one of the beliefs that is integral to your psychotherapy practice that is, the belief that it is our birthright to inhabit, trust, and honor our physical and emotional selves without shame, because that's something we've been addressing in our discussion today.
3: Welcome, Nethery. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here with y'all. Well, we would um,
1: love to hear anything that you have to advise us about or to explain or to, you know, sort of illuminate. We have a number of of questions that we've kind of collected from around the place around and about do you want us just to go ahead with those would that be a good way to start
4: absolutely i'm happy to expand on any any questions you have or i can keep talking <laughs> well keep talking
1: for a while so we because sure. you, you, you know you've just had to listen to a whole lot of information from us some of which may be incorrect
4: I loved, uh, first of all, your story, Helen. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Unfortunately, it is a very common experience. And uh, for folks who have more chronic experiences of eating disorders and are being missed in treatment, misdiagnosed, undiagnosed, um, it is very common. So I do want to just reiterate that the emphasis on the myth that there's a certain Type of person who gets an eating disorder, and typically the stereotype is a thin white, cisgender, heterosexual, um, affluent young woman, teens, early um, 20s, is wrong. That person makes up, goodness, maybe 20%, maybe of the overall um, people who have diagnosed eating disorders. So it's a very, very low number. So there are many, many people who are not being treated for their eating disorder. So the statistic of 30 million people in the United States having eating disorders, I think, is um, very low. There are much more people. A lot of people. Yes.
1: But you know it's not all reported or or diagnosed or understood, you know. No.
4: So even the numbers that we have, while still alarming, don't even paint the whole picture.
2: That's amazing because the research I found just blew me away. And now to have your expert opinion um, share that they're even higher is so important
4: to get out to our listeners. Absolutely. And what I love about your podcast and your story, Helen, is that, yes, there is hope that just because uh, right now we're we're in a transition time, at least even in the eating disorder treatment field. The traditional model of treatment still focuses on weight control and trying to um, influence someone's body size. However, what we know is any focus on weight, any desire for intentional weight loss actually is more damaging than it is healing. So the concept of body respect that you talked about, Helen, body acceptance size acceptance, understanding size diversity, and um, divesting from, so completely abolishing the idea that fatness is bad. That is true healing. That's true liberation. And more and more um, treatment providers are hopefully starting to practice in that way. And that's the one thing I do want to encourage any listeners, if you are trying to find support for your own food or body struggles, is to find providers who specialize in this field and also specialize in health at every size.
1: Tell me, with your patients who are fighting to accept their bodies and love and respect their bodies as they are their own shape, their own size, weight. Um, where do they find the most positive
4: support in, in our society or in their lives? That's a great question. So community, and I love that you touch on how important group therapy is. Community is incredibly healing and necessary And having a group of people, so I run groups, therapy groups, um, specific for folks wanting to find food peace and body liberation. So that is a really helpful place to find connection and support. And there's also social groups. Um, There's a lot of connection online and online spaces. If you just kind of even Google health at every size or body liberation is connecting with people because the mainstream is is a focus on dieting. So right. our culture is just entrenched in dieting, food control, weight control, and that is incredibly harmful. And it is what continues to allow eating disorders to fester. Is the focus on thinness?
1: Oh, there's no doubt about it. I am. Um, I wonder, though, looking at sort of the the opposite end of things, when you've got a patient who is in crisis you know either physically or emotionally or psychologically what kind of intervention do you do when you feel like the patient's life is in danger
4: yes so the what y'all mentioned of first we need stabilization that is absolutely accurate and sometimes that means getting um higher level of care treatment maybe it's residential or an inpatient treatment center it could mean having a doctor Um, continue to monitor physical symptoms. If someone is not able to go to a treatment center, it could be uh, trips to the emergency room. And I do, what is challenging is that the the way that eating disorders are missed in every nook and cranny in our society, and especially in our healthcare system, means that sometimes uh, patients going to the ER actually are mistreated in terms of um, the interventions the ER docs mm-hmm. and nurses uh, provide are actually more damaging um, for a whole host of medical, um, medical knowledge that I think is beyond my pay grade. <laughs> um, at, and also, we would just need tons more hours of time. But I highly recommend anyone interested in reading the book, Sick Enough. And that's written by Dr. Gaudiani. And this is an incredible book that highlights what the physical manifestations are in terms of eating disorder symptoms, the medical consequences, and how um, doctors can be more aware of how to treat eating disorders.
3: Can you repeat well, the name of that book, please:
4: Yes, it's called "Sick Enough." Thank you
3: yes Well
1: Nethery, uh, again, just staying in the crisis mode just for a minute um, what what Can you recommend for like family and loved ones who are concerned, but don't, you know, they don't, they don't know what to do. And as we all know, having been in therapy can sometimes be part of the problem and yet they want to help. Do you, do you, how do you find yourself sort of wrangling these people with the best of intentions
4: so they don't cause more harm? Great question. And it's a little different when we're thinking of adolescents versus adults you know adolescents you know, parents have more ability to um, have someone go to treatment um, It is more challenging when someone is over eighteen and part of an eating disorder is a lack of insight into the uh, consequences of an of the behavior. So part of that is just inherent in the struggle, is not, a, be not, a, um, not able to see uh, the, the damage that's being done. So that is a very challenging experience. People who are needing more support, who are in, in more crisis than they think they are, and who are not willing to go or are ambivalent about getting more support. And family members, if they are Causing more harm, then I encourage family therapy. Um, that is a good place to start. If finances are um, difficult or if there's just no provider option in town, there are support groups people can join virtually. Um, the thing that COVID has provided us is more access to virtual uh, support spaces. True. So there's a ton out there. And I'm sure the National Eating Disorder Association will have some listed. I know Project Heal is another um, organization that is doing good work, as well as the Alliance for Eating Disorder Awareness. And there's support groups, there's pamphlets on what loved ones can do to get someone the help that they need. Okay. Well, you've, it's interesting. You've mentioned um, uh, group therapy
1: and family therapy. What what treatment methods and skills training, have you found to be beneficial uh, in your practice,
4: sort of beyond you know the therapeutic relationship? Yes, which is the most important part is that connection you have right. with your therapist. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, and so if anyone's out there who doesn't feel like they're in a have a good relationship, talk to your therapist about it because that's truly the most important part is finding someone you have a, a very good connection with. Helen I and I know from that, that
2: from years yeah. of being in yes. therapy. <laughs> yes, we understand that. I'm
4: You're familiar. You, yes, am glad For, you 40, years, that. 40 straight important. years. Yes, it is so important. Um, that, I think, is the container that holds the uh, vulnerability that's going to come up in processing all of these struggles. And as you mentioned, um, DBT, that is a uh, really great skills training focused. Um, Intervention. So I typically weave in some DBT work, particularly when there's more acuity of behaviors. So if someone is struggling more actively with uh, urges and acting on behaviors, uh, DBT is a really great um, modality, as well as acceptance and commitment therapy, which is one of my favorites. It really utilizes a lot of mindfulness, tenets, and um, connecting with your values what matters most to you in life. And as you shared, Helen, it is having that life worth living that can help someone move through the discomfort of healing, knowing that it's going to lead you to a life that matters to you. So those two mixed with, um, I'm a somatic based practitioner. So including the body is necessary. Right. These are harms done to the body. And so we need to heal through the body. And I use a combination of somatic experiencing and sensory motor um, psychotherapy to help move some of the um, uh, the discomfort, the trauma. There is typically some trauma experiences that we process as well. Um,
2: yeah. Can you explain somatic to our listeners, please? Yes.
4: Yeah, so somatic um is basically soma which is the body so it is incorporating the felt senses within the body as part of therapy so it's not always just a talk therapy um it could be exploring sensations that come up in the body any physical movements that the body's wanting to do in response to whatever material is being processed and it's including the body in helping regulate uh, what comes up
1: yeah thank I- you I really can't. Uh, again, having been through a body work where some of the the tenets that you were describing, we did uh, it can really be so helpful if it's if it's done by the right person. I think it can Absolutely. just be incredible because it is. Uh, well, trauma is embedded in the body, and then the whole so much of my. Life has been based on hating my body. I mean, really hating it, you know. And so anything to have a better relationship with it and to understand how it works, I think, can be invaluable. Now, here's what I've been wanting to ask you about. How do you feel about medication and eating disorders? Because I've heard all kinds of conflicting responses.
4: I think medication, and this is true for anything, is absolutely an option. It is up to the client if that's something that they want to explore. Um, Many times I've seen it work amazing, amazingly for folks. And the key is to find someone, and particularly when when we're talking about eating disorders, is someone who's trained in understanding eating disorders because if there is any malnutrition that does impact how medication is absorbed, Um, there is some medication that is... um, Contraindicated in folks who are malnourished just because of um, you know possible side effects that are very damaging and fatal. Right. So it's really important to find a provider who is knowledgeable.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it's a, it's a tough decision. I think again because your body already is so battered, and these medications for me have been great. But then there are you know the side effects that are undeniable. Um, what? Um, You know, I was shocked when Valerie started looking into the high incident of co-occurrence. I call it comorbidity. How does that affect your treatment of someone who not only has the eating disorder, but then has got other, maybe multiple other uh, psychiatric illnesses?
4: Absolutely. Yeah, that is, I, I rarely, and I don't think ever have seen anyone just have just an eating disorder. There's always something else. Um, anxiety, depression, trauma, substance use, ADHD, autism. Um, there's really OCD is another high, highly co-occurring uh, diagnosis. So what that means is treatment must be integrative. So we have to tackle everything at the same time. If there's anything, though, that is life-threatening, so that could be if the substance use is at a level where it is the most acute and life-threatening, that needs to be managed uh, first, of course. If the eating disorder is something that's more acute or trauma, um, depressive symptoms, if there's anything that's life-threatening, that takes priority. Um, Ideally, there would be a treatment center that can incorporate all of the different um, struggles that someone might be um, experiencing, but we don't have that right now, so that's a that's an area of concern. Is that typically, it's you go to a substance use focused treatment center, they just do substance use. Eating disorders typically just do eating disorder treatment. We need more places that can integrate all aspects of someone's uh, struggle.
1: Well, that's that's. Uh, I'm afraid that's on down the road, but I, I assume that there are people that you know that are savvy to this, and that it will start happening. It's just that you know that. It's for the people, to me, it's always what, but I need help now, you know, that urgency that we all feel in dealing with these things.
4: Um, yes. And um, just on that, one other thing is eating disorders require, a, the treatment of eating disorders require a team. So not just a therapist, but a dietitian, doctor, psychiatrist could be, you know, I'm not specialized in OCD. So if I'm working with someone, uh, maybe they see an OCD specialist to help target OCD um, related exposure work or, or therapy, so it does take a team, and that's the one thing I do want to convey: is it really does require a wide uh, variety of providers and different expertise. And that, of
1: course, gets into the problem of who who can afford that. Exactly. So what, what? Where in the country is this offered at a reasonable rate, or what clinics or whatever? So it's a it's a tough one. I I guess I'm I'm curious about. What are the, you know, you run into this all the time. People ask you what you do for a living. You deal with eating disorders. What what are the greatest myths and misconceptions about eating disorders that you run into?
4: Yeah, aside from um, that eating disorders look a certain way, that stereotypical person that I mentioned that we've talked about. um,
3: I think the biggest myth out there is
4: that fatness is bad. Right. And that is very, very, very damaging. Um, why that is, and you know, we've mentioned some 12-step options like Overeaters Anonymous. Uh, there are some programs that still encourage weight loss or restriction of certain food types. So even if it's a list of these foods are good or these activities are good and this is bad, that is still encouraging the idea that. Um, an external source needs to dictate uh, your own intuitive connection with your food and your body. And it also is uh, the subtext is that you need to be smaller. So eating certain foods. So you are smaller (laughs) because why, because the myth is that being fat is bad. I think we're going to have to have you back. (laughs) We're going to have to talk about this again. It's, It's so multifaceted
1: to try to talk about get all this covered in, in, in one episode. Um, I do have a a final question, which is um, what makes you most optimistic for people fighting these, these illnesses today?
4: Oh, why I love this podcast is that lived experience is powerful. And I have my own lived experience of struggling with an eating disorder, you know, being a queer non-binary person in the world, growing up without any idea of what that meant, you know. I turned to my body to try to control and stay small. And that's so not true today. I I personally have gone through my own journey. I've found healing and I get to be a part of so many people's stories and healing journeys. So that is that I just can see it happen. That gives me hope. And that is what I sh- why I show up every day to do this work is that I see that it's possible. And when someone, you know, my my clients who um, I've been with for several, several years are able to say, "Wow, I feel comfortable sitting here in my body with you today," and that mm-hmm. that's why I do this. It's possible.
1: It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And uh, and gosh, I wish I wish we could just talk for the rest of the day um, because. Uh, you you've just opened my mind and I know Valerie's and I'm sure all of our listeners. So, so um, beautifully, I guess is the word I would use and eloquently um, you have these invaluable insights and contributions to this exploration. And we really appreciate the chance to hear from someone as experienced and committed as you are to overcoming these illnesses. And I would like to also just on behalf of The hundreds and hundreds of people that you've helped, thank you for what you've done for them. Because I think in a way you can look on it as part of the continuum that they will go out and they will be better and they may help other people get better with all of this too. Um, So I'm afraid we do have to bring this to a close. Thank you so much. And now, speaking of mindfulness, We're going to conclude with the soothing part of our presentation after all this turmoil, uh, a much needed mindfulness exercise with Valerie.
2: Yes, we will do that. But first, I want to thank Nethery. Thank you so much for being here. You have brought so much to the conversation. And I also know that you share in my belief that having our dark paths be able to shine a light of hope to others really does bring value and meaning to our stories. And uh, I'm just so grateful you're um, providing that to others. Thank you so much for all that you do and for being here today.
4: Thank you both for having me. And I'm happy to come back anytime or if any listener wants to plug into resources, they can reach out to me and I'm happy to offer whatever support I can.
3: Great.
2: Thank you so much. We will put your information in our show notes. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. Now, as I always do, I will give a definition. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is the practice of being hyper aware of the moment. It is being in the present, acknowledging what you are thinking and feeling and accepting it without judgment. Being mindful is about immersing yourself in the present moment to the extent that you are fully aware of everything you are experiencing in that moment. Today's mindfulness exercise is called Make-A-Wish, and it is what I call instant mindfulness in that it is something you can do in just a few minutes, literally in about three to five minutes. This one may be about three minutes. So let's start. And if you can, close your eyes. If you're driving, please don't. And let's start by studying your breathing. We're going to do just two diaphragmatic breaths. That's breathing in through your nose, out through your mouth, expanding that
3: balloon in your stomach. Let's start with breathing through your nose. One, two, three, four, five. Breathing out through your mouth. Two, three, four, five. Another cleansing breath in through your nose. Two, three. Four, five, out of your mouth. Two, three, four. Now ask yourself, what is it that you want? Come up with a wish. Now, ask yourself the same question. What is it that you want? Most probably, you will get a different answer. Ask yourself again. What is it that you want? Compare those three answers and derive your own conclusion. This exercise will offer you food for thought for the remainder of the day. It may even influence your interaction with others as well as how you treat yourself. Thank you for doing this mindfulness exercise with me.
1: Oh, thank you, Valerie. I have to bring myself back. Uh, This was a perfect way to conclude uh, this particular episode. As we've learned, eating disorders are complex, pernicious illnesses that can be overcome. A lifetime of management may be required, but recovery is possible and can be sustained, especially given the treatment methods available, and even more are emerging. Our next episode takes us to the role of law enforcement in mental health interventions. There's a great deal to learn about how law enforcement has enhanced its methods of dealing with a mental health crisis, and how to have a successful interaction should the need arise. We'll be joined by Senior Officer Jamie Von Seltman of the Austin Police Department. She is a leader in training law enforcement to help the mentally ill when they are in crisis. So please join us for this crucial, life-changing episode.
2: And I want to thank our listeners for joining us today. As always, we are honored that you have spent time with us
1: and we leave you with our favorite word onward
0: what is it you really want in life no matter what you've been through you can still achieve it I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my energy activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm
3: podcast network